across a whole variety of roles that require whether it be sales or human resources or um, any kind of frontline activity, people still need to understand that their ability to connect and to communicate and to have empathy and um, and to, you know, as I said, I think earlier, to be happy and helpful can't be replaced by AI. How do you get 10,000 people to take a step to the left? What's behind the relentless mindset of a world champion? Why do teams of exceptional talent fail? How do you manage the pressure to perform? These are the sum of the curious questions we will attempt to answer as we bring you world leaders, curious minds, exceptional talent, successful CEOs, and incredible human beings who know how to inspire great leaders and are inspiring great leaders themselves. I am Craig Johns, high performance leadership expert, international speaker, and CEO of Speakers Institute Corporate and World Sport Coach. This is the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Welcome to the Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Our guest today is the founder and CEO of Arate Executive and the Boardroom, an executive recruitment specialist, host of Arate podcast and best-selling author of the book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market. Very relevant right now. His background includes studying a Bachelor of Commerce degree from Griffith University and an MBA from Queensland University of Technology. He is highly regarded as a fellow of the Australian Institute of Management and, and an active member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. His career kicked off uh, with roles in regional and national manager positions at P&O Services Spotlight, Spotless and Benaris before moving into the world of executive search and recruitment. Get ready to be inspired and enlightened as we welcome our guest, the unparalleled connector whose expertise in executive recruitment and career development are second to none. Richard Triggs. Richard, welcome to the show. It's uh, wonderful to be here, Craig. Yes, there's a few uh, hard to uh, pronounce words, uh, Arate and Benaris, so uh, apologies for that. Uh, uh, <laughs> It, but uh, it gives me a good talking point. People say, how do I pronounce the name of your business? And it allows me to explain uh, the origin of the word arate, the fulfillment of one's full potential. So uh, uh, the mispronunciations actually work in our favor. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, you've you've got a business with a Greek name. You are currently sitting on a beautiful deck overlooking uh, the lake there in Queenstown. Uh, but I would love to know, and I'm very curious, where did you grow up and what was the big dream as you ran around the playgrounds? Uh-huh. Very good. Uh, so uh, my parents uh, are both English. My father's passed away now, but uh, he was a, a university academic. And so after he graduated, uh, completed his PhD, we, they moved to Canada and I was born in Edmonton, Alberta. I think the year I was born... It was their coldest year in umpteen years, so minus 42 degrees centigrade. So uh, they lasted two years there. Then we moved to California where my brother was born, 
lived in Australia since I was four. So um, high school, uh, primary school in Sydney, high school in Brisbane. Um, when I started uh, grade eight in high school, um, I started to learn to play the guitar and I was a huge fan back then when I was 12 of the band Kiss that I'm sure you're uh, yes. you're familiar with. Anyway, so my, my grand plan was I wanted to be a rock star. And uh, uh, I so I finished my high schooling, started a university degree, but I uh, dropped out to tour as a musician for four years. Um, ended up uh, living in Melbourne and realising that, boy, it's hard work to try and make a living in, in the music industry. And uh, I rang my parents after sort of four or five years of dedicated uh, attempting to be a rock star and said, I think I need to come home and go back to uni. So uh, that was the end of my um, my professional musician dreams and uh, and the start of my corporate ones. Okay, fascinating, fascinating. And so uh, obviously, apart from learning that there's not much money in the musical world unless you, you kind of reach the top echelon, uh, what else did you learn from that journey of, you know, playing in a band, uh, that has taught you something that kind of allows you to utilize that now in the role that you do as an executive search? Ah, okay. Um, well, I, I think you know, often uh, people use sport as an analogy about being a team and being a team player. Um, but in fact, being in a band is very much like being in a sporting team in that you have to rely on each other. Um, but uh, it has to sort of extra uh, emphasis because when you're on tour, you're often uh, five people um, traveling in one car, sleeping in one room, playing sticky gigs uh, in dirty rock venues uh, for months on end. So if you can't get on well with people, then uh, you're not going to last very long. So uh, I suppose uh, uh, it taught me, you know, to be able to compromise and, um, and also to, uh, ensure that whilst it was work it still had to be fun mm. and i think that that's something i've carried right through my career uh if it's not fun then i really don't want to do it <laughs> so were you more of a leader or follower in your formative years uh i would say i am probably uh, a reluctant leader. I always seem to be put into the, the leadership role, but um, there are many times where I think I would prefer to sit back and let others uh, shine the light, but uh, I seem to always uh, end up um, taking that leadership role, whether that's in music or in my family life or, you know, certainly in business. So if you reflect back now, what sort of characteristics do you feel you have that people recognize in you for your leadership qualities? Uh, I think I, I'm i not uh, afraid to speak my mind. Uh, I can be accused of being very direct uh, and uh, you know very much uh, somebody who will call things out rather than letting them fester. Um, and I, I think also I, uh, I enjoy the innovation, entrepreneurial uh, mindset. I like to think of new and creative ways to get things done uh, that haven't been done before. And that's certainly been the case in my recruitment business. Um, you know, we offer some solutions which are very unique in the market. Um, and that's because uh, I just like to break paradigms. 
Okay, so talking about breaking paradigms. So what, what are some of those, the innovative things that you do in the executive uh, recruitment world uh, that you feel allow you to stand out from other executive search firms? Sure. Uh, well, in the world, there are a number of uh, big global search firms. Uh, the five uh, main ones, they call them the Shrek brands, S-H-R-E-K, Spencer Stewart, Hydric Struggles, Russell Reynolds, Egon, and Sender Corn Ferry. So, you know, these companies have been around for a long time. They charge exorbitant fees and uh, they really um, only want to deliver search for the very, very top end C-level um, uh, C-suite roles. So typically roles probably paying $400,000 plus. Um, we uh, wanted to come into the market 14 and a half years ago to compete with them but my belief is that search is going to deliver a much greater result uh, than just putting it out on Seek, regardless of the level of role. And that, especially with the rise of LinkedIn as a way to source talent, the, the traditional search fees that these companies are being paid, they just not, they don't make sense commercially anymore. So, for example, uh, just before COVID, so at the beginning of 2020, we launched a solution, we call it our shortlist solution, which is a flat fee. Uh, it's literally just going from 8500 to $9,500, um, where we will run the front end of the process and deliver a shortlist. Um, and then the client uses their own HR team to, to close out the balance of the recruitment process. So it's very affordable. It's very quick. Um, it delivers excellent results. And it's allowed us to win some major blue chip clients where we may not be recruiting those sort of $400,000 plus C-suite roles, but we have one client, for example, in the last two years, we've delivered over 100 assignments for them. So I've looked at ways of rather than trying to compete with internal recruitment um, to actually work at how do I partner with them to get better results for the organisations they work for. Then on the other side of the coin, uh, having been in executive search for uh, over 20 years now, of course, a lot of people reach out to me to say, Richard, um, I'm looking for a new job. I'd love to get some advice about my job search. So what I did uh, in 2015 is I wrote a book called Uncover the Hidden Job Market. Um, and I provide a lot of education, webinars, uh, different uh, strategies to support predominantly senior executives as to how they go about finding a new job. Because... Um, uh, many people are still, you know, putting an application through Seek and praying that, you know, they'll be uh, selected for interview and then praying that they'll get the job, um, which is pretty inefficient and uh, certainly does not allow people to access those hidden job market opportunities. So, uh, you know, my uh, philosophy is that if I'm happy and helpful, the world will look after me or the universe will look after me. So I've looked at ways of how can I support both the employer and the executive to get great outcomes in a way that uh, is not expensive, uh, it's not prohibitive, and uh, it's it's done us very well. So putting that book out eight years ago, um, we've had some big shifts in the world and the way that people do work and, and are still trying to figure out exactly what works best <clears throat> for each company in regards to uh, the way we do our work in these days is is there anything that you've learned now that you didn't have in the book 
that is becoming really important in the current job market? Well, I, I literally have just uh, released the uh, second edition. Uh, it came out hot off the press about a month ago. So when I went back to revise the book, I probably changed not a lot of content, maybe I'd say definitely less than 20%. Um, so there, there certainly have been um, some major shifts in what's happening in, in the market. Obviously, COVID and people's ability to work from home uh, has uh, created a much higher degree or desire for flexibility. Um, a lot of people during COVID who were at sort of retirement age uh, made some choices about, you know, the lifestyle that they wanted to lead and, and probably left the workforce uh, to retire a little earlier than they might have otherwise. We've had very um, low level of skilled migration during this period, so that's put a lot of pressure on. So it has become a market where uh, candidates have got a lot more choice and uh, uh, they can be far more demanding of employers than perhaps they could have back in 2015. But I think the fundamentals really haven't changed. Um, I'd suggest that at least 80% of job vacancies never, ever get advertised. They never get to a recruiter. They never get to the open job market. They're filled through the hidden job market. And what I mean by that is that employers will identify somebody who can take away their pain or solve their problems and they'll hire them even if they don't have a vacancy. So if candidates are limiting their job search to purely what's being advertised, number one, they're only seeing a very small percentage of the actual roles. Number two, you know, the competition for those roles is very high. And because recruiters are lazy and stupid, and I certainly regard myself as a lazy and stupid recruiter, if we you know, run an ad for a CEO or a CFO or whatever it might be, and we have 200 applicants, you know, the 10 squarest pegs are going to get an interview and the other 190 people are going to get the odd thanks but no thanks email um, because recruiters are not incentivized to try and put round pegs into square holes. But the reality is with people's key achievements and their transferable skills, you know, they could easily, in many instances, make the move into that role and be very successful. But by going through that traditional uh, applying for the role on Seek or LinkedIn now, um, they're really limiting their ability to even get noticed, let alone being offered. So what my book is about is about, okay, well, in order to access those hidden job markets, you need to get in front of your employers of choice before they know that they need you. And once you're in front of them, if you can demonstrate to them that you can solve their problems and take away their pain, they'll hire you without going through a protracted and expensive recruitment process. On the other side of the coin, what employers um, are having to put a lot more attention on now, although very few companies are doing it very well, is how do we actually build our brand as an employer of choice? And how do the individual leaders within our business build their personal brand as a boss of choice? Because um, when candidates have so much choice, uh, unless you are perceived as a reputable and quality employer that's uh, doing interesting things, people just simply won't want to work for you anymore. Mm. Fascinating. Uh, lots of lots of curiosity and questions in my mind right now. Um, with 
obviously the changing landscape in the way that CEOs and C-suite need to be able to uh, fulfill their roles and be able to build culture and and have a level of control over their culture in a way and be able to connect with their people. There's not many people that would have had the skill set required when COVID hit. So are we seeing a not only an upskilling or reskilling inside the workforce, but also happening at executive level where they're having to learn new skills? And if so, what are those skills that you're noticing that, that people at the executive and, and sort of C-suite level now need to be considering? Uh, a, a very pertinent question. I'm actually halfway through writing my next book, which is on how to hire and retain top talent. And so I would say that, yes, there is, there are very much uh, uh, changes required. And yet I would suggest that, that uh, employers are not really understanding that and are, are being pretty slow to move. So, for example, you know, during COVID, um, there were a lot of people who would have left or would have looked for a new job, but they chose not to because they felt it was too risky. You know, what if I go to this new company and I get COVID? What if I go to this new company and they're negatively impacted by COVID? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang out here, safe harbour in a storm, and once COVID's behind us, then I'll move. So, of course, once COVID was largely behind us last year, all the media started to talk about the Great Resignation. Oh, there's this new phenomenon, the Great Resignation, which is rubbish. Mm-hmm. You know, it... it, it there was nothing particularly different about it. It was literally there'd been a bottleneck and the bottleneck got released. So, um, and then the other thing is employers uh, are saying, look, there's a war for talent. Oh, there's this war for talent and, you know, we can't get quality people. Well, that's rubbish too. Unfortunately, employers during the last 10 years as LinkedIn became much more uh, uh popular um platform for people to use and then employers started to buy what they call linkedin recruiter licenses and then started to employ internal recruiters to do their recruitment for them um their belief was oh look we you know internal recruiters can just jump on linkedin you know find people and send them an email and uh we'll we'll be saturated with talent and we uh simply won't have to use third-party recruiters anymore well, of course, um, internal recruiters are um, simply uh, utilizing LinkedIn in that way is very ineffective. And so the recruiters are going back to their line managers and saying, oh, sorry, boss, uh, we've only got three candidates or one candidate. This is the best of the people who presented for the opportunity. and uh, But you can't blame us because there's a war for talent. All right. There's no war for talent. If you're a great employer and you can offer uh, employees meaningful work uh, that is exciting and well remunerated and uh, they have the opportunity to work with, you know, dynamic and inspiring leaders, you will get people. Mm. But a lot of organizations are still in this mindset of, you know, the candidate is the commodity and you know, people should feel grateful just to have a job, right? So certainly I think um, what we are seeing, particularly in areas like professional services, a lot of younger people now are coming out of university 
and they're wanting uh, to have accelerated career growth. They're wanting to more and more money. You know, they're less and less loyal. And once again, you know, the uh, the this uh, pale male style, you know, which is me, right? You know, fifty five white um, uh, senior executives who are in a lot of these roles are completely dismayed. Oh, you know, the younger generation, uh, they're not giving us any loyalty and they want everything too quick, et cetera, et cetera. Not realising that, um, you know, the, the younger people coming into the job market now are looking at the world. They're looking at, you know, the economy. They're looking at how COVID was dealt with. They're looking at wars in Ukraine and they're looking at, the you know, the reality that they'll probably never be able to buy a home. So they think, well, why would I be loyal? You know what? 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 Yeah, the the idea of join a company and uh, and do your time and and you know earn the gold watch and you know be patient and so on. What for? You know when I when I came into the workforce, you know thirty years ago or whatever it was, you know it was you got a job, you worked hard, you got married, you bought a house, um, you did the corporate dance. Uh, but it is a completely different um, landscape now. And so I think a lot of the senior executives who are trying to navigate uh, through these changes are still trying to do it um, in that old paradigm rather than recognising and embracing um, and adapting to uh, what could be a much more dynamic and exciting uh, way to work in the future. I always find it fascinating when people find it frustrating to work with the next generations. And I'm like, well, you created them. You created the environment for them to grow up in. So if you created it, it shouldn't be that hard to figure out how to work with it. And just because you think your focus and attention is on that next generation, it doesn't mean that your generation or generations before you are not also thinking the same way. And so... I think nowadays we, it's, it's very rare to see anyone at, at any sort of generation thinking about, <clears throat> I want to be a lifelong in a company. It's very, very rare to find them now. You know, everyone is looking for something fresh, moving around. We don't see as many people stick at the roles that long. I, I just look at people's LinkedIn profiles and it doesn't matter what age they are. When you look at the long tenures, they seem to be more back in the 1990s and 2000s. No matter what the age is, what we're seeing now is people, you know, are maybe looking for something that gives them more fulfillment and more value. And it's not so much around remuneration. Uh, maybe it is at the moment, but in most cases, it wasn't so much around that. Am I happy in the work that I do? Do I enjoy being uh, at work with other people? Uh, it seems like that social construct in a way where work wasn't so much the social connection um, and there were other things people were doing. Now it seems like the workplace tends to be that centerpiece of people's social world as well. Yeah, I, look, uh, a couple of points there. So firstly, I think uh, I was doing research for my new book and Average professional tenure of white-collar professionals in Australia uh, in the early 2000s was three years. Mm. Average professional tenure in Australia of white-collar professionals in 2022, 2023 is three years. Mm. It, ha it hasn't changed at all, right? Um, I, I think also one of the, the um, 
big changes is with this workplace flexibility and so on. I was talking to somebody about this recently. You know, my very first job when I came out of university, I went and worked for James Hardy. And you were sitting in the office with the guys who'd been there for a long time. And on Friday, we'd all go out and have lunch and they'd share the war stories. And if you had any questions or you needed some encouragement or whatever, there were people around you that you could lean on. Well, younger people now, particularly, you know, in organisations where they may be working from home, either full time or three to four days a week, they don't have that access to, you know, the the people who have got that entrenched corporate knowledge and entrenched identity so i would say um your point about people's social life uh you know uh centering around the workforce uh my experience has probably been the reverse of that Mm. because people are working a lot less in an office the the sort of the binds that they have with their peers um are a lot more tenuous and again, that's going to have an impact on um, retention because, you know, if they don't have a direct personal relationship with the people around them and so on, then they're less, uh, uh, they're less likely to want to remain in an organisation for the benefit of those relationships. Are we seeing any differences in trends around people hiring more internally versus externally or is it pretty consistent to what it's always been? You mean um, promoting internally versus hiring externally? Yeah, correct. Um, uh, oh, look, I, I, I can't say that I've noticed any particular change in that regard. I mean, obviously, if there is less access to external talent because, for example, you know, a lot of IT roles um, were filled with people, you know, international people here on working visas and so on, well, when that completely dried up during COVID, there literally was no external talent. So there was no alternative other than to develop um, uh, people internally. But um, uh, I, I suppose, you know, from a recruitment point of view, we're recruiting at executive leadership level roles. Um, so um, I don't see as much of that as perhaps if I was recruiting at, say, a graduate level. Hmm. With the big discussions and and obviously a big focal point at the beginning of this year and it's still kind of hanging in there a little bit is around artificial intelligence and and the likes of chat GPT and all these things around how that's going to shift the workforce in a way. Uh, Are you seeing companies look to their leaders to have a greater understanding of this or has there been a greater emphasis around kind of the human intelligence side of things? Um, I was listening to one of your podcasts and I think a, a guy made a comment. It's not going to be AI that replaces people. It's going to be people who are good at AI replacing people who aren't good or something along that lines. And I, that to me, I'd not heard it expressed that way before, but I think that that is exactly um, uh, the truth. In uh, it, There wouldn't be a day go by that I'm not talking to a CEO or a board director or a senior leader who is now using some form of 
chat GPT or artificial intelligence in their business. Uh, so, you know, they might say, oh, Richard, we've just started using chat GPT to write our newsletters. Or um, uh, I was talking to a guy who runs a recruitment company and they're now using one of these programs to format all of the CVs, etc. So I think that there is a lot of... Um, uh, there is a lot of work that can and will continue to be taken over by artificial intelligence. But then on the other side of the coin, you know, if you talk about it from a recruitment point of view, uh, I've just wrote an article for The Weekend Australian, um, where basically humans like to talk to humans. And so to think that they can replace a recruitment process by using um, with some form of artificial intelligence. So as a simple example, a lot of larger companies now will use uh, some form of uh, technology to go through resumes that are being submitted to look for certain keywords, etc. And they're making decisions on who they shortlist for job interviews based on that. Well, the reality is a lot of people are very poor at writing resumes. So you could have an absolutely awesome candidate but because they didn't write a very good resume, they're being excluded from consideration by some form of artificial intelligence. Um, that's dumb, mm. right? Like, likewise, uh, across a whole variety of roles that require, whether it be sales or human resources or um, any kind of frontline activity, people still need to understand that their ability to connect and to communicate and to have empathy and um, and to, you know, as I said, I think earlier, to be happy and helpful can't be replaced by AI. Mm. So it will be very, very interesting. I'm, I'm here in Queenstown. Uh, there's a big bunch of us. There's uh, 11 parents and 20 children. And uh, all of us are in different kinds of careers and businesses and so on. But uh, to think about what our children, what the world will look like, even in five years' time, let alone in 10 years' time, it's almost unfathomable. Um, I, I don't think anybody can predict how quickly and to what degree, you know, traditional jobs will be replaced. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, I was taught a few years ago that we pretty much, most humans will see the world in 200 years. So 100 years prior to... Uh, prior to like 100 years previous and 100 years forward but yep. i think i think now it's it's even harder to see 100 years forward if i ask someone to uh to give me an idea of what the world will look like in uh 2100 most people have no idea it blows their mind maybe 20 50 they can kind of imagine what that looks like but you think about 2100 most people it is like too far it, they just have no idea it's the world's changing so fast um so i i think it's i think it's a really interesting place we're in right now it's exciting like for me as, as the kind of human i am i'm excited about it you know what is possible i am too we can see so many yeah. things but you can see for a lot of people that there's fear as well because it's moving so fast. How do they keep up? How do they stay relevant? Uh, and, and I think that's a, a kind of a critical thing. What, what should people be looking for now in regards to staying relevant in the marketplace, especially if they are proactively putting themselves out there for recruitment? 
Oh, gosh. Well, I, I suppose it really depends on uh, the areas that they want to work in. Um, you know, my son is in grade 10 and he's starting to think about what do I want to study when I, or when I finish school. And, you know, my, my thought is, well, probably the, the, the jobs that will be most exciting haven't even been invented yet. Somebody was telling me that, um, I, and I'm not a tech person, so I, I don't understand the exact terminology, but one of the fastest growing and highest remunerated jobs now is for the people who write the questions that go into chat GPT, mm. right? Now, that job didn't even exist a year ago. Yeah. Um, right? So, but I, I think, um, uh, so coming back to your original question, look, uh, I think that um, as long as somebody is, uh, you know, a lifelong student and they're continuing to uh, develop themselves professionally, um regardless of, you know, the particular skill sets, certainly employers look for that. And I think that one of the, you know, the massive advantages that people have now is that there's just so many alternative ways to actually develop knowledge, you know, through watching things on YouTube or buying, you know, short courses on the internet, you know, that the idea of go to university, you know, spend five years getting a degree and then maybe that job doesn't even exist by the time you finish, which could be the case for some professions like law, for example. You know, uh, the um, uh, I think that there are more students studying law uh, than there are actually people working in law. Hmm. And yet, if you watch a little documentary on uh, YouTube, it's called Humans Need Not Apply. Really fascinating. It's saying that, you know, I think... The, this documentary is a couple of years old. It was saying by 2025, 45% of all of the work that lawyers do will be done by computers. So committing to going to do a degree uh, in that environment to me, I mean, it's pretty risky, right? Whereas if you are um, uh, interested in uh, the humanities, for example, you know, the amount of music and art and uh, poetry and everything that's been generated by AI now, as you say, it's just impossible to predict. Um, and then, of course, uh, you know, um, once um, artificial general intelligence uh, has consciousness um, and is sentient, then human beings are just going to be redundant anyway. So... And I'm, I'm a bit of a fatalist. I think that that will definitely happen, and I think it will happen far quicker than what people are predicting. It's interesting, you know, when I when I think about, say, law or even finance, you know, you get people that, uh, you know, your top lawyers that are actually in the court or they're, they're doing the big deals. If they, you know, if we look at them in say 10 or 20 years and they haven't had the experience of doing the research and doing those things that build your capacity and capability in that industry to then go, you know, that, that gap that could be replaced and, and potentially is likely to be replaced by artificial intelligence or other technologies who does all the research for you, are they going to have the skill set to be able to make those critical decisions without having that time in and learning it. That, that's kind of a, it's a question that sits in my head and I don't know the, the real answer to this. Are there other ways to learn this? I don't know, but I'm curious to get your thoughts around, 
are there certain industries that if we replace some of the you know mundane tasks does that actually affect our decision making and our thinking ability uh at the higher level well I, I, there's probably two sides to that question firstly I, I think people's you know um the uh, ability just to pay attention and um I'm struggling for the right word here. You know, people have now you know, get so distracted by technology. Their atten- their, their attention span. You know, uh, I, I, even for myself, you know, I'm constantly checking my phone, checking my emails, checking Facebook. You know, even if I'm sitting down and watching a movie that I'm enjoying, all of a sudden my hand will be on my phone and I'm looking at my Facebook feed and I think to myself, Richard, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you? You know, you're enjoying this movie. Why? So, and I look at you know the kids here, and you know there are four or five kids that'll be sitting around a table, but instead of playing a board game or having a conversation, everybody's on their phone, you know, looking at their own feed. So I think attention span is going to be um, uh, something that really needs to be addressed. But, uh, you know, again, going back to that little documentary, Humans Need Not Apply, which is excellent. I highly recommend it. You know, I was talking about how uh, when there was a sort of revolution and they brought in farming machinery, the the semi-skilled workers from the farms moved into the cities and got jobs working in factories. And then when they recognised the factories, a lot of those people uh, went into uh, semi-skilled work, maybe in hospitality or, you know, other areas like that. But as these people now um, are being replaced, um, you look at, for example, when they're bringing in autonomous vehicles, what percentage of people actually work in as drivers, whether they're driving trucks or cars or Ubers and so on, um, you know, you would assume that lawyers have got a, a degree of intelligence and adaptability. But to think that a guy who's been driving a truck for 40 years um, is going to be able to learn to code, right, is is a pretty ridiculous assumption. Hmm. Um and so, unless they really start to take things like universal basic income seriously, we we could be in for some pretty hairy times ahead. Because if you have a massive percentage of the workplace which are being um, essentially, you know, removed from the workforce uh, and are under financial hardship and so on, you know, it's not going to be long before they start to look at people who have got you know, a lot more money and say, mm, this doesn't really work for us anymore. You know, French Revolution, uh, people should watch that and, and and learn from those lessons. But instead, our society reveres the Jeff Bezoses and so on of the world, you know, I, I, um, without thinking what could be the consequence if that continues. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm excited for the future, but I think there are some things that we need to be starting to pay attention to and that is a big one. How do we give people meaning if the the work that they generated from their their meaning from is no longer available to them? Mm-hmm. Great, great question to to ponder on for everyone listening. I how did like, what was the backstory to coming up with Arate uh, as the name of your business for executive firm? Where did that come from? <laughs> so uh, so when I founded the business back in 2009, 
with my wife at the time, who unfortunately I'm no longer married to, uh, we were thinking, what are we going to name this business? I didn't want to call it Triggs Recruitment because I didn't want it to be about me. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd worked for a, a business, another recruitment company, uh, that was named after the founders. And so because it's named after the founders, they were kind of imprisoned within this business. Um, so we were typing words into uh, Google like um, achievement and success. And anyway, this word popped up called arate. And uh, uh, arate is a Greek word. It means the fulfillment of one's full potential. Um, Homer used it in the uh, Iliad or the Odyssey. I can't recall which of the two. But in that context, it was where heroes gather to realize their full potential. And so we thought about it. Well, what we want to do is we want to assist our employer clients to achieve their full potential by hiring excellent people. We want to assist candidates in achieving their highest potential by getting a great job. And we want the people who come and work with us to achieve their full potential by being successful, you know, in the work of um, being in executive recruitment. So we loved the word and it was a very, it was not a commonly um, used word. We certainly hadn't seen any evidence, but uh, not long after that, there's now a vineyard, uh, a winemaking company in Australia called Arate. There's a fit out company called Arate and uh it seems that there's lots more arrows popping up. There's a, 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 a you know a very high end um, coaching business in the US called Arate, and uh, so I'm not suggesting that they all copied us, but you know for for whatever reason, uh, Arate is um, uh, is a far more common word than it was 14, 15 years ago. Uh, and if you don't mind, I may even borrow it for a nurturing rising talent uh, keynote that I'm delivering for a. A global company tomorrow night. <laughs> it fits in perfectly. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Now, you have, uh, for you, you like to, you know, outside of the work that you do, or you may even incorporate in the work you do, is, you know, the power of the mind and being able to free the mind, etc. So, you've spent a bit of time at Buddhist uh, monasteries, doing meditation, etc. Tell me a little bit about that side of your life. Sure. So uh, I've always been fascinated by um, human potential, human psychology. I've I've never regarded myself as a particularly religious person, but I've always, uh, you know, I've I've always felt that a lot of the principles of religion are, um, you know, are are very useful in helping uh, to lead a a worthy life. And... uh, Anyway, I used to, uh, many, many years ago, I did a course that was called um, Alpha Dynamic. And so what Alpha Dynamic taught you to do was to be able to, at will, uh, be able to meditate and reduce your brain waves down to an alpha state, which is the state of light sleep or rapid eye movement, um, in order to access um, uh, uh, improved memory and improved goal setting and improved uh, um uh, just uh, mental clarity, etc. I ended up teaching that course for about 20 years. And uh, then, um, uh, again, this is quite some time ago, I was gifted a four-day introduction to Buddhism course at a place called Chen Rezig on the Sunshine Coast, which is the largest community of Buddhist monks and nuns in the Southern Hemisphere. 
And anyway, I went to this course and I, I went, wow, Buddhism, I mean, obviously it is a religion, uh, although they don't necessarily regard themselves as being religious, but there is so much within the Buddhist teachings which very much paralleled, you know, what I'd been learning about and, and teaching uh, in this uh, Alpha Dynamic course. So I ended up signing on to do a four-year program where I lived there one week and a month uh, for four years um, studying Buddhism at, I suppose, the deepest level you would other than whether you, yeah, other than if you chose to be ordained to become a monk or a nun. And uh, at one point I started to think about uh, becoming a monk, but uh, some people far wiser said to me, uh, Richard, your lifestyle is probably not that congruent with being a monastic uh, uh, person. I think you should give that a wide berth. So <laughs> I kind of led this weird life where... Uh, you know, I was earning good money. I was as an executive recruiter, and then I'd go up there and I'd hang out with these monks and nuns who literally, you know, were so happy uh, with virtually no possessions. Um, I found it just um, really good for me, a great balance. Um, and then uh, there is a certain um, Buddhist practice that's called Vipassana, where you go and you sit in absolute silence for 10 days, uh, so no reading, no writing, no TV, no music, no verbal or non-verbal communication, no eye contact. Uh, you meditate for 10 and a half hours a day for 10 days straight. And so I, I've done that seven times. Uh, I used to do that every year until uh, I had children and had to sort of rein that back. And uh, more recently, I've been um, working uh, the last two and a half years, I've been training as a psychotherapist. Um so, uh, yeah, I, I find, look, I, I'm a person who gets bored easily, so I like to uh, I like to do new and interesting things. But, you know, there is so much um, uh, that you can bring from those practices into business or not necessarily even into business, but just into life. So one of the things I love to say to myself, which is based on a Buddhist teaching, some people think I'm a... I, uh, um, this is a negative thing, but for me, it's not negative at all. I think to myself every day, uh, Richard, you are going to die. And there's an old expression, it's called memento mori. Memento mori, remember you will die. So, Richard, you are going to die. You are probably going to die sooner than you hope to, right? We all think that we're going to live this long life and we'll be 90 years old and so on, but I, I literally, I could go skiing tomorrow and fall over and I, you know, I, life is so fragile. So, Richard, you are definitely going to die. You will probably die sooner than you expect to. And not long after you die, nobody will ever remember that you were ever alive. You know, my children will remember. If I am old enough, uh, if I live long enough till they have children my, and my grandchildren know me, well, they might remember. But nobody after that. Mm. Even the most successful, the most famous people all of these influences now, not long after they die, nobody will ever remember that they were ever alive. So if that's the case, why care about anything? Hmm. Just have fun. Just lead a happy life. Again, be happy and helpful because it's going to be gone in a minute. And once it's gone, it never, it, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Literally, there's the worst that can happen is I will die and I'm going to die. So um, I don't find that depressing in the slightest. I, I find that really 
it allows me to take risks and to get out of my comfort zone and to uh, you know explore and adventure and so on rather than feeling oh you know i need to build a legacy and i need to you know build intergeneral intergenerational wealth and all of these things that people get caught up on and they get so anxious about the future rather than just living in the present moment mm. i mean fundamentally if you if you narrow buddhism down to just one belief that's it and uh and it, it, I find it's a great way to live my life. Great, I, I love, I love that philosophy. You know, from a young age when I was first in intensive care, you know, I, I've just been happy to be alive when I wake up each day, and so um, I, I like that approach. There's probably one exception to it, and that is uh, that, that you mentioned there that you become irrelevant in a way. The are probably the only profession where you do become very relevant when you pass away is successful artists because <laughs> they never make any money while they're alive, but they always make <laughs> gazillions of dollars once they're, uh, once they're gone. <laughs> in, uh, in, until some climate activist goes, Oh, I'm going to glue my hands to this priceless money because, uh, I don't want people to, you know, mine coal anymore. And then your art's worth nothing. <laughs> well, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Has an extra story and element to story to it. We all, yeah. we all know great, uh, or we all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time I did something for the first time? Uh, goodness me. That's not probably a question I should have prepared earlier because uh, I think I've shot my head. Uh, one of the things that, um, you know, my people might find uh, a little bit interesting and controversial is uh, I um, uh, recently uh, did an ayahuasca retreat. And uh, are you familiar with ayahuasca? Yes. So ayahuasca is a, a South American uh, plant medicine that's been used for thousands of years. And uh, people take it and uh, in a environment with uh, somebody who is there to ensure it is safe. And, and um, you have a profound psychedelic journey. And um, uh, these psychedelic medicines um, are getting a lot of interest now. There's a lot of research being done, particularly in the U US, um, around the use of... Uh, things like um, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and other psychedelic medicines for um, treatment of uh, uh, trauma and PTSD. And um, and then there's a lot of people who are now microdosing psilocybin and, and doing things uh, to unlock greater creativity. And, um, and it's becoming uh, far more popular, far more mainstream. And um, in fact, Australia, I think, is the first Western country to decriminalise um, uh, psilocybin and MDMA for uh, for therapeutic use. Mm -hmm. So again, because I'm really interested in these things and I've done all of these different retreats and Buddhism and meditation retreats and alpha dynamic and so on and so forth, I had an opportunity to um, uh, to experience an ayahuasca ceremony. And uh, I it's definitely not for the faint-hearted, but it is something that uh, I... Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed and uh, believe was very beneficial 
Uh, well, we could dive into that in another conversation. What is the one question that you would love to solve? What is the one question that I would love to solve? Uh, most of the time, it's where have I put my keys? awesome i love that question we definitely haven't had one like that Uh, for you what is an inspiring great leader and who's a great example of this for you um i i'm inspired by people who um, challenge the status quo and are uh, prepared to uh, 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 be brave. Um, not necessarily, uh, well, I should say, not only in a business context, but very much in a social context too. I, th- I think that there, um, the, there are many people in history who've, you know, put their own personal safety um, secondary to speaking out about something that they believe in. And so to me, that is true leadership. And whether that's, you know, uh, in the civil rights movement or in the, um, uh, you know, different areas of uh, uh, turmoil, you know, whether that's the Dalai Lama or Martin Luther King or, you know, different people, I find that's very inspiring leadership. But I, but I also think that, um, you know, there's a lot to be said for being a good parent, you know, um, I think parenthood is um, requires great leadership. And uh, when I see people who, you know, truly parent well, I, I'm I'm in awe. Uh, so you don't have to be on the front page of you know Time magazine to be a great leader. It could be something as simple as um, you know being a volunteer for a charity. Um, Leadership is something that is uh, inherent in all of us. And I think that people, you know, often are much greater leaders than they give themselves credit for. Beautiful. Richard, uh, great conversation. How can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Well, of course, uh, LinkedIn is probably the predominant platform uh, uh, in business, and uh, I'm a very active LinkedIn um, user, so people can uh, certainly connect with me there uh, or through my business, Arate Executive. Um, as I say, my book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, uh, is um, the second edition has just been released, and that's available uh, uh, where you buy books now. I, I read everything on Kindle now. I don't think I've read a physical book in years. Uh, I also have my own I have my own podcast. It's called the Arate Podcast. Uh, and uh, and uh, otherwise, just um, you'll find me. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. Love it. Love it. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today, Richard. Uh, I've enjoyed getting to know more about your world and what you do. I, I love the fact that uh, for you, you were able to experience different uh, recruitment phases in your career so far and what we're seeing and the shifts that technology is creating and social media is creating and the way people may look at their recruiting. Uh, For you to have a perspective on the current job market and also look at 
being really proactive in regards to recruiting. I really like that fact because a lot of people are very reactive and, and wait for an opportunity to come up. But I think that approach of putting yourself out there and as you say, I think it was it was 80% of jobs aren't advertised or something similar to that. So there are a lot of opportunities out there for people to uh, sort of delve in and uncover the hidden job market. So make sure you check out Richard's book. But Richard, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Craig. And uh, uh, I believe that you're arriving in Queenstown the day before I'm leaving. So uh, we might uh, bump into each other uh, running around town uh, in the next couple of days. It's time for you to join the Inspiring Great Leaders movement by visiting craigjohns.com.au. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to hashtag inspiring great leaders. We would love it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the Craig Johns LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Inspiring Great Leaders podcast. Where the ordinary don't belong.